Hi everyone, welcome to Radio Cachimbona. Radio Cachimbona is a podcast hosted by one Salvatorian. That's a Salvadoran Taurus. Growing, healing, and storytelling in other in <laughs> in southern Arizona. I'm here to storytell the fierce ongoing resistance occurring in these borderlands and centering Central American voices. This week I'm really excited to bring you all a public lit review. I interviewed Abiola, my friend who's a PhD student at the U of A, and we talked about how we get free, Black Feminism and the Combahee River Collective, which is an anthology that was edited by Kianga Yamada Taylor. And we talk about the original Combahee River Collective statement and why it's still relevant today. If you want to support Radio Cachimbona, please follow on all social media platforms. It's Radio Cachimbona on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And also, it would be really nice to get an iTunes review if you enjoy the content. Haven't gotten a review all summer, so I would really, really appreciate the support. Thanks, y'all, and hope you enjoy. Super honored today to have my friend Abiola to here to talk about the Combahee River collective statement and the anthology that was edited by Kianga Yamada Taylor. I hope I pronounced that correctly. And uh, so before we really get into the content, I was gonna have Abiola introduce herself and also talk a bit about your research. She is a fourth year higher education PhD at the University of Arizona. Hello, my name is Biola Mustafa, or if you pronounce it the government way, it's Abiola Mustafa. It's so oh, great to meet. Yes, yes. Abiola, <laughs> Abiola, but you were close. Um, <laughs> it's nice to finally meet you all. I am honored to be on this specific episode. A little bit about me: born and raised in Los Angeles, California. I went to all schools, California. I was a California girl to live and die in LA, so I started off at UC. Berkeley and then I moved on to Claremont Graduate University and now I'm here at the University of Arizona and thinking about feminism and womanism I didn't necessarily have the terminology or the words for it but it was embodied through my aunts and seeing my mother and seeing my sisters and all of the other powerful black women who were effortlessly doing it all and attempting to take care of themselves and everyone else at the same time. It wasn't until I got to UC Berkeley that I actually no backtrack scratch I take it back so it was <laughs> the summer of 2004 at Scripps oh, wow. College Academy, and it's an all-girls school in the Claremont Colleges, which is why they planted the seed. Then I ended up at Claremont Graduate University, and I also worked for them. Like, how, how old were you in 2004? I was 14 years old. Okay. So this is like a college prep kind of Yes. Program. So it was the first ever college prep academy. So here I am living my best blacktastic life, and then I am starting to do all these enrichment programs because my mommy... And like, you know, the sisters, they're like, we're we're about this black and brown excellence. This is what you're going to do. Mm-hmm. And I ended up going to this school and it was the first time where I was confronted with this idea that blackness and brilliance didn't marry and didn't come together. Wow. So it was a joke when I said I had a 4.0. It was, ha ha, he he he, you're just being ridiculous and like obnoxious. And I'm like... No, no, it's 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 real. Mm-hmm. This is also so that was in the social arena, mm-hmm. and then in the academic realm because this was a prep academy for ninth graders who were like rising to go to college, mm-hmm. upper bound. Mm-hmm. 
in that arena that's where i sort of discovered white feminism and i'm like what is this who is who are all these white feminists who are doing all of these things and why are they concerned primarily about sex and sexuality when coming from a black background i see black feminism as more of a collective more of women loving women more of we don't hate men but we're looking to be free all of us same gender loving like and loving on each other and uplifting each other so that was like a little bit there. Yeah. Like white feminism is more individualistic. Yes, and less collective. Yeah. So it was it was different. <laughs> like I was just like, wow. So that was de- that definitely added another element to my toolbox on what I understood. And then in terms of the language, I still didn't have it yet because I was 14 years old. So fast forward to me being in college at UC Berkeley and I signed up for all the women's studies and gender studies classes that I could find. And I kept getting confronted with all of these like white feminist women. <laughs> so. Yeah. So it wasn't until I actually started doing my own individual projects where I discovered this bridge called my back, where I discovered doll hooks, feminism is for everybody. So that was also another point where I like switched from looking at all these like more wider individualistic, like you said, feminists and started shifting more towards like brown and black women and seeing the nuances and the ways in which Gloria and Zeldua and... Laylee Woodard and I'm trying to think and speak all of these names into existence. Was it Barbara Smith that was in that anthology and also in Yes, this? yes. Okay. Barbara Smith. Feel free to jump in. Patricia Hill Collins, Black Sexual Politics and Black Feminist Thought. Oh, no, there's Audre Lorde. Audre Lorde. Gloria and Zeldua. Yes. Shari Moraga. Mm-hmm. Shari Moraga. And the list goes on. Yes. Oh, Chandra Mohanty. She's amazing. <laughs> so yeah, just like rediscovering all those things brought me to the place of, and I am ashamed to say it, but I will say it because we are all here to grow. It's a judgment-free zone. But when I first started my PhD program, I was approaching my research topic from the space and the place of seeing the ways that black women excelled and sort of counting them and marking them so and trying to figure out how we could help support them in those incentives so their test scores or their gre scores are like looking at those indicators since then i have grown (laughs) and my research is more on looking at the ways that black women have collectively black and brown women have collectively came together worked together formed mentoring relationships or actually like apprenticeships under different women Mm -hmm. and have succeeded through a holistic approach to their lives their careers their families etc 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 so i'm looking more at the ways in which we are collectively uplifting each other versus counting so is is it true that your methodology now is narrative yes yeah and i really appreciate that switch that you started from like statistics and numbers numbers, (laughs) and and then you went to narrative yeah. yeah. I also, so do you think it's your personal experiences that also inspired you to focus on women like Polly Murray mm-hmm. and Constance Baker Motley that excelled within higher education settings because you were questioned so much when you went to that prep school? Prep school as well as UC Berkeley. There was just... Oh, UC Berkeley. Yes, yes. UC Berkeley as well. I'm going to say it again. <laughs> UC Berkeley. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> they were out of control. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was a year before I got there. Really? Um, Mm-hmm. Wow. That's when it passed the year before. So my wow. other sisters. So yeah, there was a disconnect. So I understood, like internally understood the importance of supporting, uplifting, um, and moving forward as a collective 
for women like us to be together in the movement towards freedom. And I also noticed that I didn't necessarily fit, not by choice, but by them labeling me as the other, that I didn't fit in those spaces. In the classrooms, it was similar where the conversation, or even outside of the classroom, the conversation was different than the conversations that I had at home or in the neighborhood. Like it just, it wasn't aligned with the black and brown people that I knew in Los Angeles and it just didn't match. So that's what pushed me to look for meaning and look to see myself reflected in the text and reflected in the work and to see something from what I consider substantial being done about all of the institutional and capitalist problematic things that were going on. So, yeah. I really appreciated your audio message where you said that you didn't want to necessarily do like line by line text analysis mm, yes using a lot of the buzzwords that are in the statement and are in the interviews of folks because you wanted to keep it accessible yes i really appreciate that because you are an academic mm-hmm. and academia kind of it, it's an ivory tower and yep. it's about creating a language that you all know but that other folks don't yep and it's very what's the word it starts with the knee exclusionary exclusionary yeah yeah it's very exclusionary exclusionary yeah it deliberately (laughs) excludes those who have and i said quote who have not read all of the things um (laughs) (laughs) so with reading this i'm not gonna lie when i first like read it and then when i read it again because i took it while i was like traveling for the summer Mm -hmm. i did pull out all of the text and made sure that like i had everything like all of my texts in a row and i was prepared to literally do in like literally like quote specific people and then i decided to push away from that and just go towards having a general conversation to be inclusive and to make sure that along with bringing the names of the black women and brown women who have done the work forward making sure that everybody can understand what we're saying because yeah i don't really agree with that type of language and like the gatekeeping yeah. of it all so yeah. yeah i appreciate that reminder because that's my goal with the podcast mm-hmm. and especially with the lit review it's, i want to yes i want to analyze text but i want it i want to prove that this can be a fun conversation yeah. between friends as well yeah. Yeah. on this question of vocabulary i think it's really interesting that Kimberly Crenshaw was the one who was actually who actually coined the term intersectionality, but the Combahee River Collective was the first example of that of explaining what that meant. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to ask you, how important is the term intersectionality for you? Hmm, that's a good question. The first thing I'm thinking about is how important is it to me, and then how is, how important it. Is it to those who are leading with her work and going into her work, which was published in 1989, and she sort of gave an example and went into detail on how the identity of a being a black woman, how they're at the intersection, and you literally cannot separate the two. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, because of policy and different forms that have overlooked us, we aren't included in the equation. Ultimately, we're either silenced or violenced or overlooked or all three in multiple scenarios and multiple levels in society. And then I also thinking I also think about intersectionality for those who use it for their own specific gain without mm-hmm. the black woman in mind, which I consider ironic. Yeah. But very consistent to the ways in which 
U.S. history has been made. So for me personally, it's something that I live and that I breathe and that I don't think twice about. And for young people who are thinking about looking into her work, I highly recommend that you do read her piece and that you read the reviews and you work through it and you speak to like-minded people and really try to unpack what it means and where you fit on this spectrum. And at the same time, I feel like we do need to look at the bigger picture in terms of intersectionality or just the work of everyone here. With this specific book in the collective and them actually talking about it, I'm not sure if I know enough to talk about them embodying a specific thing and mm -hmm. then the tensions there between that and intersectionality or even the tensions between the black feminist movement and the white feminist movement and womanism and how all that works. I'm more along the lines of how can we collectively work together to just like move forward. Yeah, I feel that. I really liked the definition that was given in the intro mm -hmm. which was the idea that multiple oppressions reinforce each other and creates new categories of suffering <laughs> um yeah i just appreciated that because i feel like now the way that identity politics is used it's it is used in a way that implies that it excludes other people mm -hmm. that it like breaks down coalitions of solidarity and i felt like this quote made it really important to prove that there are there is suffering that we won't see if mm -hmm. we don't look at these two axes at the same time yeah i agree and oh and then i also i so this is actually the, on the last page of the intro okay i'm flipping i'm flipping yeah mm. the the last sentence Wait, no. Oh, dang. Yours is different than mine. What? <laughs> yes, me too. Yeah, we have the exact same book. We do, but what? what oh, is the what, page 14. Is it, mm, it's gotcha. the last page of the intro, not the last page of the statement. Here we go. Yeah. Uh, so it says, the point of talking about Kombahi is not to be nostalgic. Rather, we talk about it because black women are still not free. Mm, yes. Yeah. And I wanted to kind of use it as a framing for why you and I are talking about yes. this today. <laughs> <laughs> also in the intro, Kionda Yamada Taylor notes that it's specifically black women's experiences that mm -hmm. allow us the truest insight into economic and social inequality. In your opinion, why is it so important that we... That, why is intersectionality so important? Okay, 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 okay. So, <laughs> for those of you who it's been too long, we'll remind you. So, as Demita, and I'm saying quote, as Demita Fraser says, the point of talking about Kumbahi is not nostalgic. Rather, we talk about it because black women are still not free. When I read this, it stuck with me as well, which is why there's a tab there, because I was speaking to one of my elders, and I was telling her about all the things that come with living in a larger body, a black body, yeah. a woman's body, and a primarily white violent space yeah. the university of arizona and the larger community of yeah. tucson arizona and, and arizona. the state of arizona and the you know <laughs> the united states we just said throw away america and like redo it and give the land to the people who yes. you know they took it from but that's another that's another podcast, that's another podcast. <laughs> so i immediately thought thought about in addition to demita frazier saying that but this specific elder saying 
you know what? And she was, she is a 55 year old black woman saying, it's really interesting that you say this and my heart hurts because Mm -hmm. there is a saying, and I'm not sure if you are familiar with it. And she said it and I was not familiar with it, but I'm very familiar with it is that my elders, so she's 55 years old. Keep that in mind. Mm -hmm. If her elders, they're like in upwards of like 75, 80 said things have changed, but not really. So thinking about what that means and seeing it and her heartbreaking and then the conversations that I have with my brother who have two little black, half black, half Mexican children, what that means for them and the ways in which I see schools like reproduce like violent, racist things towards anyone who does not have a white body. So I thought about that and then I also thought that on page... 27, where they say in practice of our politics, we do not believe that the end always justifies a means. So this idea of thinking about black feminism or thinking about any liberatory work for black women as not being a leveraging tool or not being something that will ultimately benefit a specific group of people or the so what or the why. And that's one of the tensions in my work in this academy that I have and I still grapple with is those groups of people who still acts the so what. And it's just because we are human, we deserve it. Um, So, and then the last point on that was also thinking about Shirley Chisholm, who ran for, who was the first black woman to run for president and her not being supported by the white feminists or by the black men in the black movement and her speaking about the importance of protecting and cherishing and uplifting the black woman and in not doing so that's basically anti-human and reminding everyone that we are human beings so those were like the beginning points that really like resonated with me okay so i think you actually you answered the question already okay (laughs) yeah and so To give another example of how looking, about how intersectionality allows us to see new categories of suffering, I think the differences that white women versus black women and women of color have experienced really comes out when you look at reproductive, at the reproductive Mm, realm. Yes. Where, because you were mentioning, I think that, or was this in a conversation I had earlier today? (laughs) (laughs) Everything's blending together. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. About how second wave feminism focused yeah you're talking about um at uc berkeley yes that the texts that you were reading were kind of focused on like on sex and sexuality and sexual freedom Mm -hmm. um and that was a real focal point of um, white women organizing in the 60s and 70s you know they were advocating for birth control and right to have an abortion which obviously black women and other women of color care about as well but when you look at the oppression of black and brown women you see forced sterilization Uh and so you have to recognize that for us reproductive justice is about being able to have healthy children and it's not just about the choice to not have kids and so I, i really appreciated that because it reminded me of the importance of using that term reproductive justice and that framing so that we don't leave people behind yes i definitely agree i definitely am not a master at this topic reproductive rights versus reproductive justice and speaking about black women's health as well as brown women's health and i definitely would recommend ashlyn strozier she is a scholar at a doctoral student she's almost close to finishing good for her (laughs) so i'll connect you too um and she definitely has made her work with that and tied it to the church as well as the state i do have sort of i'm a little bit 
I'm a little versed in history though, and I have traced and noticed that there's a pattern in history with black women's bodies in the state and mm -hmm. black women's bodies as property and them literally being used as reproductive tools to grow a population and like be indoctrinated into creating human beings and forcing them to labor for them. Another point and another tension that I have with women's rights, black feminism, womanism and just like us all as women in this world in different shades and different cultures is this whole notion of comparing black and brown women to white women or just talking about specifically like white women's rights like it just for me i'm currently at the point where i'd like to have a conversation about black women for black women and that's it or about black and brown women because you know we're we're sisters we're close cousins <laughs> yes and we're not constantly saying oh but white women have the oh but they're doing like i i'd like to not have to keep white women in the conversation mm -hmm. for the sake of validating our struggles or measuring how far on the scale of oppression or how far on the scale of silence or violence that we're experiencing and we only include white women's reproductive health and reproductive rights if it's relevant to the conversation or if we want to. Yeah. And I'm currently at the age where when I do enter those spaces and when people do ask me, because a lot of my work is primarily for black women and yeah. brown women, but primarily for black women, and they ask me what I think about white women and I tell them I don't. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's liberating to be in that space and that's, that's also something that when I thought about reproductive rights and reproductive justice and thinking about eugenics and thinking about the founder of Planned Parenthood whose name I can't remember, but we all can learn that story by Googling it, is thinking about how we have channeled our energy and how we've channeled our strength and how we have developed like our own rights and come up with forms of agency for ourselves by ourselves so that's actually that self-actualization the similar to Audre Lord, i believe she was the one who said that self-care is not self-indulgence yes self-care is self-preservation yes and then the other one yes you're like reading my mind or like vibing and then the other one that she said was quote i had to define myself otherwise i'd be yes. crunched up into other people's words Yes, or, or I'd, be, I'd be consumed by other people's words of what they projected upon me. Yeah. So that's one of the reasons why I like stray away and I try to really have this conversation and hold this space for black women and for mm -hmm. black and brown women. Because if we don't, who will? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I really appreciate that. And I've, I know the importance of people of color only spaces. I think that. There's a different creative energy that comes about when we don't need to be constantly referring back to... Or measuring, yeah. Yeah. And it's really funny or in a sad way because at the National Lawyers Guild Conference mm -hmm. every year, the People of Color Caucus says, okay, so we're going to have our meeting where we're going to talk about our internal things and our agenda. And then the white people can go to this like anti-racist training. And yeah. that's, that's what we're going to do for that session. Every single time that I've gone to the conference, some white person objects to this setup mm -hmm. and like needs to be explained why we're quote unquote segregating ourselves and why they can't be in the people of color room. Yeah. <laughs> 
So that just goes to say the questioning, the automatic knee jerk of like, wait a minute, why can't I? Versus when we're in our specific spaces and we create them, we're actively creating them. I think that's a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. It's just honoring that. And also another on another point of learning how to just say no. And I think that comes with being a woman as well. We constantly explain yeah. ourselves. We constantly apologize. Oh, yeah. Like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I just want to ask to clarify. No. Well, can I? No. What? <laughs> no. <laughs> the end. <laughs> they like, prove the point of why the space is important. It's like, because we don't want to waste energy explaining why to you. Or do the intellectual and emotional labor for you. So it's right. just. Right. We told it really anti-racist training. The end. So, yeah. It's really nice to constantly be in that space. It's definitely a work in progress of just learning how to say no to all people. I'm getting better about that as I get older. Yeah. And I love it. Yes. And like protecting your energy. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah, that's a real thing. It is. Mm -hmm. It's a constant thing. So I was talking to you about this before we started recording, but something that I really appreciate about the Columbia River Collective is how they centered capitalism Mm -hmm. as an oppressive force. And I think millennials really understand this because Mm -hmm. as a generation, we're saddled with school debt and we haven't, you know, a lot of us have been able to move out of our parents' homes or, you know, therefore buy homes ourselves. Yes. And a lot of us are in precarious job situations. Mm-hmm. And I just really appreciate that framework, especially, I think, going into 2020, there is this question of, like, can we be a quote-unquote socialist country? Yeah, yeah. This is definitely a point, like, seeing those points in the book as well was something that I definitely grappled with. It was something I checked myself with. Yeah. With growing up and swimming and, and like, being immersed in a capitalist society and with the notion of, oh, you have to have all of the things. You have to own this set amount of land. You have to own the car. You have to travel abroad and do X, Y, and Z. And then also realizing and wondering and working through wealth and what that means and what it means for your life and what education means. So Mm -hmm. thinking about my advanced degree and all of your advanced degrees Mm -hmm. and what that means and what we place value on and what we're chasing and also acknowledging that we do have that privilege and there are those who carry just as much value and or deserve to have a part in these conversations who are not necessarily in those spaces and have those credentials as well. I didn't necessarily see, I heard, I saw them talk about it, but I didn't necessarily see like there was just tension, like with the interviewing and they're saying like, oh, you're like bourgeoisie, but I would have liked to see the author or any of the women explicitly talk about how black people are not monolithic and how we don't have low SES, the Obamas, Oprah, <laughs> like in that order that we have had, if you look into the history books, black people who have graduated as early from with advanced degrees, bachelor's degrees from all black institutions as early as 1823. And that we have had people who created, they did speak about this a little bit about freedom schools, that there have been schools of thought that the Black Panther Party was created, but just, I would have loved to see a portion of the book dedicated to the wealth, to the nuances, and to the ways in which we have intellectually grown, spiritually grown, and just have uplifted each other like within that spectrum in this society and what that means moving forward. Yeah, that's true. I would have liked a bit of self-reflection as well because talking about the start of Kitchen Table Press, Mm -hmm. she's talking about how 
they didn't really have any funding back then and so they just kind of like started on their own and like I I think that that in some ways is possible now and I think probably people like you and I are best situated to start something like that but there's also privilege in that yeah so there's privilege in taking those risks there's privilege in being able to control your uterus and decide if you want to procreate and start a family now versus later Mm -hmm. there's privilege in being like okay well if I don't make it I can for sure go back to my parents house because I'm in my young 20s like this is what I can do or I have friends where they'll help me I have like a social network where I can still get on my feet so these were all privileged women who have those networks who were privileged and recognizing that and also talking about those nuances and how it complicates like identity would have been like great to see too yeah it also inspires me to do my own self-reflection of Mm -hmm. how i can not participate in fast fashion for example Mm -hmm. i think we're also talking about this before we started recording how i really appreciated the folks used to identify as third world women and used to really prioritize being in solidarity with women of color worldwide, not just in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a challenge that I need to make for myself because I I haven't been thinking enough about like where my clothes come from, how much how many how much clothes clothing I buy, mm-hmm. and do have I ever even really thought about the person who makes my clothes? True, like, and then um, the privilege in that as well of being a commercially sized woman, and I yeah, it, it's all relative. So I'll be very clear in this and saying that I believe a commercially sized woman is between five feet and about five eight, and mm-hmm. no more than two hundred pounds. So you yeah. could fit up to a size twelve. So if you're within that range and you have a shoe size that's a size eight or a nine and under, like you're not in the double digits, then you're commercially sized and you have access to that. So with accessibility and thinking about like what that means and who they're excluding and who they're not and then also the marketing of it and also the privilege of being like oh i want to get this 25 dollar romper from forever 21 for this concert (laughs) there's privilege in that and being able to attend that concert and being able to buy that romper versus some people are at the space and in the place of hmm what can i wear right or or even what should i wear today what is my style whatever clothes covered my body because of the way my salary or the way my income is set up at the end yeah no, that's good. so yeah that's another like <laughs> thing as well so yeah The CRC statement is the first text to use the term identity politics. Mm -hmm. How do you think that that term is misused in public discourse today? Mm. I believe that identity politics as well as um, intersectionality are misused and hijacked and taken in a lot of ways. And primarily, if we look back at history and the ways in which those who are (laughs) non-Black are taking these things, and that's part of what they talked about in the book as well, Mm -hmm. of them not naming this collective after a person, but after like an event in a specific place. Yeah, I appreciated that. Yeah, is thinking about the ways in which people have taken Martin Luther King's name and sanitized it or Sojourner Truth's name and like hijacked it or Harriet Tubman's and used it for their own like capitalist gain. And I believe Chandra Mahanti talks about it. And she's like, it's not necessarily it's not intersectional if you say i'm a vegan and i do yoga and i'm middle class like you just can't check it off and then the same thing with identity politics of being like i'm a rocker so i think that 
there's danger and there's violence to be had when individuals come into spaces and don't necessarily honor those who have done the intellectual and emotional labor and actually have cited, read, <laughs> and developed and like grew these concepts. I think there's a problem in that specific arena for those who don't place honor on those who've done it already. Yeah. Intersectionality is quoted a ton and Kimberly Crenshaw is sometimes just not cited as the person who coined that term. Yeah. <laughs> and that's awful. Yeah. It's a problem. A really big one. I think what I appreciated about reading this statement is that it reminded me that my lived experiences are political and it, it really gave me hope that that was kind of the Kobe River Collective's organizing strategy. Mm-hmm. It's like we are providing black women with an opportunity to become political by talking about their lived experiences. It's like in reflecting on your own experiences, that can be a gateway to getting radical politics. Yes. And I appreciated that because I think I got a vocabulary for these things Mm -hmm. in college, like we were talking about, but the way that I was able to really understand these concepts of capitalism, of patriarchy, is by thinking about my own life. Yeah, and that's really important. I appreciate it as well. And I'm going to push back and maybe be a negative Nancy for a moment and say that it was extremely frustrating. Like, reading this pissed me off. (laughs) It made me mad in part because I'm just like, really? We're doing this? Like, we're, we're really doing this. Like, we as human beings within the world, we're not even talking about the United States. Like, we are continuing to perpetuate and we're continuing to further all of these, like, problematic things to the point where we, as Black women, or we as brown women have to push for and force and justify and like make space for ourselves versus just existing. So thinking about the future and thinking about my future children if I decide to have them and my nieces and my nephews and the young ones that I work with at different elementary schools or that I come across and thinking about the world that I want them to live in, I don't want to sit across from them similar to the elder who was sitting across from me a good 45 years older that's like, oh, this breaks my heart. Like I, so I'm at the point where I appreciate the spaces that we're creating and I'm glad that we have this and I'm glad that Taylor, the author, brought this back to the forefront because this is still a problem. Yeah. And I'd like for this book to no longer be relevant in 10 years because all of these problems are solved because it just, yeah. So it was great, but it also was like a reminder and I was just like, why? Yeah, actually, one of the quotes that I pulled out that I really, really liked from the statement itself was, we reject pedestals, queenhood, and walking 10 paces behind. To be recognized as human, lovely human, is enough. Mm -hmm. And I was just, I wrote, yes, I feel this. I want that, to not have to think twice, Mm -hmm. to not have that double consciousness that W.B. Boyce was talking about, and to just live, like you were saying. To just exist. Mm -hmm. And not get killed for it. Just or reprimanded if you're living in a specific way, channeling your strength. So yeah, yeah, it is pretty frustrating to read, and it's uh, sad to read because you're like they talk about how the Copley River Collective also saw themselves, they saw themselves in solidarity with women of color worldwide, and also saw themselves as internally colonized, and it's it's tough to. Like, recently I was thinking about childhood TV show, cartoon shows that mm-hmm. I watched, like Hey Arnold, mm-hmm. 
And when I went back, I realized, oh my God, this is so racist. How did I not pick up on this? And how, oh wow, that's where, this is part of where the internalized racism came from. And where they're indoctrinating you into thinking about things and normalizing, normalizing certain aspects of what that looks like. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it was painful to think about literally that watching that and internalizing that is normal. Yeah. It's, it's a lot. And then another point in another place that they didn't speak about but i felt it like it was like right beneath the surface like if you just scratch a little bit you could like feel it um that they did not explicitly talk about was health mm. and um well-being and how revolutionary it is to take care of yourself because that is necessary so one of the things that i reflected well i'm always reflecting but i especially have been reflective this summer about um with reading and rereading this is in what ways as black women, in what ways as brown women, are we taking care of ourselves unapologetically and balancing that with taking care of ourselves emotionally, psychologically, physically, and not in the space of like the consumerist way. Yeah. So not the $180 facial from Blue Mercury, but it's more of meditation and drinking water and eating things that grow from the earth if you're able and if like your body like recognizes those nutrients and in community care mm -hmm. like cooking dinner for your friends so yeah. you all eat good that night yeah and just like being there and holding spaces for your friends and just just i understand the importance of striving to create space and make space and fight for it but at the end of the day when you walk into your household and you close the blinds and you lock the door like is your hair falling out do you have ulcers in the lining of your stomach because of the stress? Are you sleeping more than seven hours a night? And these are all questions that I ask women in my sister circle who are professionals that are super corporate, who are PhD students, who are like seven years in the game and knock on wood, they finish soon, <laughs> who are teachers, who are mothers. And this is something that I constantly ask of myself when I'm reflecting and that I constantly ask of them of how are you? Have you drink, drank any water today for the sake of as black and brown women, we are often the ones who, and you can see it historically as well, who are doing all of the legwork, who are doing all of the heavy lifting, who are raising the children, who are doing all of these things. And we oftentimes forget that the most important thing is to stop and prioritize ourselves as well. Mm -hmm. My mom always says that if you don't have your health, you don't have anything. Yeah. And so that's why, like, I have been what you would call an overachiever for a long time. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I recognize it in you and in me. Mm, terrible. <laughs> no, it's not. It's, it's... I, I guess I've just come to also reflect on how I have really internalized this idea that my worth is tied to my productivity. And that, mm -hmm. that does actually, for a long period of time, that was what motivated me and what fueled me. And I realized how unhealthy that is. Yep. But... I really appreciate my mom because she knows that I have those kind of workaholic tendencies and any time that I tell her I don't feel well, that I'm tired, that I'm not sleeping well, she's like, you need to take care of yourself. Because, yep. you know, I know that you want X job and I know that you want to do X, Y, and Z, but if you don't have your health, you won't be able to do those things. Yes. Or if you don't have your health, you don't have your health. Yeah, it's not even like, I have to exercise and drink water in order to do well at my job or do well in school. Except no, just so you can. Yeah. God, for those of you who do not believe in Jesus or God or who are not spiritual, the whatever celestial energy you believe in, but for me, God gives you one body. 
It's not like you can do those little lunchtime procedures, get a surgery and get a new one. So we must take care of the one body that we have because it's important and you want it's broken or it has 10, 20, 15 years of abuse, then it won't thank you and it will let you know how upset it is with you. Yeah. So, yeah. No, I, I really feel that because I was having a conversation last night with the two other white lawyers who went on this Arizona state prison tour with me mm-hmm. and they were, t- one of them said something like, Look, we're debriefing the shittiest things that we had seen mm-hmm. and then he was like, and here we are, drinking a beer. And you could tell that he felt guilty. And in my head, I was just like, you know, that's your emotion, but that's why I take care of myself because I enter these institutions and I recognize that the state is killing black and brown people. Mm-hmm. That it is actively denying folks healthcare and having them rot in cages. And that to to be healthy, to drink my water, Mm -hmm. to eat well, to sleep well is an act of resistance. Exactly. And just existing and just being untroubled. And another thing that I have learned, it's a lesson that I thought that I internalized when I was a child, but at every level of education, similar to you, I've been in the game, doing school (laughs) since July of two July the third, two thousand (laughs) and eight is You have to fight for your boundaries and you have to fight for your health and you have to protect it. And if that means in the literal sense of here we are drinking a beer, no siree, Bob, I'm drinking a glass of water and I will see you both in 45 minutes or how about tomorrow? Send me an email if you need anything because I'm going home to do yoga or I'm going dancing with my friends or I'm going to swim laps in the pool. Like I am carving out time for myself that hour a day or that 45 minutes a day or even 30 minutes a day. You can start with 15. Similar, and you're protecting that time, similar to you rushing out the house and sometimes missing breakfast and grabbing something out of the vending machine because you have to be at work for those eight hours. So you're making sure that you're waking up on time every single day to drive into whatever job you have or whatever commitment you have on the daily. I believe that it's just important to do that same type of commitment of like, that's great. This staff meeting is going on for a very long time. It's 5 p.m. I must go now. Yeah. And any other questions, please email me because I have this commitment. The same commitment that got me here on time at my job is the same commitment that's going to get me here on time for me to meditate and reflect at the end of every day. Yeah. So That's the thing because if you actually want to do social justice work long term, you do have to take care of yourself. Yeah. And so it's actually a reflection of how committed you are to the work mm-hmm. to take care of yourself because... You and how committed you are to yourself. Yeah. It's to yourself just, first, right. And yeah. as women of color, we do need to show up for ourselves yeah. because other people do not. Yeah. And because we're worth it and we're yes. worthy and we deserve it. And yes. just because we deserve it, mm-hmm. we deserve to take care of ourselves. <laughs> so it's about an hour since we started recording. Oh my god, really? Yes, yeah, 508. Time is flying. <laughs> wow. So I don't want to keep you too long. Is there anything else that you want to talk about? 
Let me look at my notes. I literally have five points that I wanted to hit. So we did talk about Eula Taylor and how she talked about black feminism. We talked Don't about- Don't you define womanism? Cause you mm. said that sometimes. Yes, let's do yeah, that yeah. as well. We talked about just because we talked about self care. We talked about portions. Yeah, we talked about everything but womanism. So even though I said earlier that I was not gonna read anything, quote, I also am a woman in the words of Wendy Williams. I'm a woman and I'm allowed to change my mind. <laughs> <laughs> And this is Laylee Woodard's The Womanist Reader, The First Quarter Century of Womanist Thought. And she says that womanism is a societal change perspective rooted in black women's and other women of color's everyday experiences and everyday methods of problem solving in everyday spaces, extended to the problem of ending all forms of oppression for all people, restoring the balance between people and the environment slash nature, and reconciling human life with the spiritual dimension. So going back to black feminism and what this book specifically talks about as well as other scholars in thinking about where womanism enters the picture. Alice Walker, for those of you who are not familiar with her, in her book titled A Womanist, not A Womanist, in her book title, in her piece titled A Walk in My Mother's Garden, likens, she says, and this is a loose quote, womanism is to feminism as purple is to lavender. So there are of the same schools of thought, but womanism developed in response to the aversion that certain black women had in response to the whiteness that has permeated feminist movements. So with the first black black feminists, the first wave of black feminism, the second wave of black feminism, and the third wave of black feminism, womanism entered the realm in the third phase in the first phase of black feminism similar to the black Lives matter movement black women who were collectively working together organizing and transforming their spaces and doing social justice work worked with very racist white women for the sake of let's just get this over with let's work with them and make it go the second wave of black feminism that is when we actually like started moving a little bit faster and we decided no we're not going to work with you you need to check yourself you need to check privilege and you need to check all the racist things that you're saying in miss magazine and all of your other publications and no we're not allowing you to enter those spaces so eerily enough similar to <laughs> similar to your experience that you talked about earlier with white people questioning why they weren't allowed in spaces the same thing was happening with black women so in their conferences they would have a general speaking session and then breakouts for black women only and the white women were allowed to come to that one space but they're like why can't we so it goes back to this why aren't we allowed entrance into all these sacred spaces? Centering themselves. Right. So there was tension there. And with the third wave, that's the most current wave of black feminism, there was tension and disgust as well as frustration, rightfully so, from black feminists saying like, why do we have to deal with these people in the first place? They've hijacked a majority of our things. A lot of the organizing and the techniques and the strategies that we have done as black feminists, they are taking as their own. They are taking the name of Harriet Tubman, they took Shadrona's truth name and like put it on a magazine and said, this is our Shadrona magazine. So they're taking these things. So why wow. do we even have to? There was also tension and issues with sex and sexuality in the church. So thinking about the different issues that arose for queer black women or women who were same gender loving or women who presented in non-traditional ways that weren't heteronormative or traditionally feminine. So womanism, there are four tenets of it. It arose from that. And 
now there's a plethora of <laughs> streams of womanist thought. So Africana womanism, Clonora Hudson Weems is a good person to read if you want to learn a little bit more about that. There's also like womanism within the religious sector that pushes back against the black church and the ways in which patriarchy reigns supreme. That's important. Yes. Because I'm always out here criticizing Because <laughs> right? it is an institution. So that's a whole nother topic. And then in terms of womanism in general, one of the key tenets and one of the terms is it is for women loving other women. So it's literally written in there in support and in solidarity of same gender loving women, of queer women, of lesbian women, of women who are not heterosexual. Um, so yeah, I think that both of them are really important to have in the conversation when we're thinking about dismantling oppressive norms or like reschooling the ways in which we think about things. Um, yeah, that's just, did I answer? That's a really comprehensive <laughs> <laughs> And I love that you gave stuff for people to read. So just yes. Because on the website, you can post links so that Ooh, folks, can, folks okay. can just click and Perfect. also get educated. Yes, I'm also down to have like a collective reading list. So if we could do a Google Doc and then just have PDFs available to people. For those who are not, for now, financially able to um, access those things or who don't have access to a university database, and I would highly, highly, highly recommend that those who are able to afford um, purchasing Laylee Wooders and Clonora Hudson Weems books and all these books from these black women to purchase them in support of these black women to buy yeah, their work. The and you can afford to pay for it, okay? Yeah, and one, one, one last request is to cite these black women um, and make sure that we continue to say their names and we continue to um, give them credit for all of the labor, intellectual labor that they have done and giving us these tools and these lenses to like continue to like push past all of these barriers. So it's my last ask. <laughs> it reminded me that someone did give me like a Google Doc folder of revolutionary texts written by women of color. I would love that. Yeah, so I'll send it to yes, you. Yes, please. Then, I don't know if there's an, a way we can add stuff to it, but I'll post a link to it on the Radio Cachinguana website too so that folks listening to this can also check that out. Yes. All right, so on that note, Hope you all enjoyed this interview and I hope you all go out and read how we get free, the Combahee River Collective Statement and also the anthology of interviews that Kionga Yamada Taylor edited. Yes, on by feminism. Thank you. Bye everyone. Bye. Bye.